KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. We've heard a ton about medical advancements that happened really quickly in response to COVID 19. Meanwhile, scientists and doctors have been working on other diseases for decades. For instance, in the COVID frenzy, I feel like I haven't heard much about cancer lately, which got me wondering where do we stand in the fight against cancer these days? You know, I think their stated goal was to reduce cancer by 50% in some very short time frame. I guess it's great to have a stretch goal. I am not super optimistic that we're going to hit, hit that one, but I am optimistic in general. I asked Dr. Jonathan Chernoff, director of the Fox Chase Cancer Center at Temple Health, to catch us up on the state of cancer research and why it might seem like slow progress. Not only is cancer not one disease, but it's not even the same disease in the different individuals. If you got a melanoma and I got a melanoma, we may or may not respond the same to drugs that are out there. While we may not have a cure around the corner, Dr. Chernoff explains where we have made tremendous progress and what's on the horizon in cancer treatment and detection. So I wanted to start with a little context because I think everybody that reads an article or hears an interview about cancer kind of wonders to themselves, why haven't we cured cancer or when are we going to cure cancer? And are we doing ourselves a disservice to say cancer like it is this one one entity and not all these different types of cancer that attack all different parts of the body in all different ways and almost on a person-by-person basis? Yeah, no, I think you have hit the nail on the head. So, you know, cancer is more of a general term, like infection might be a general term. You know, nobody expects that there is one medicine that will cure all infections. Likewise, there's very unlikely to be one medicine that cures all cancers. They're, They're very different diseases caused by different agents and will ultimately require different sorts of therapies. That said, I understand the public's frustration, my own frustration for the lack of apparent progress. And I say apparent because there actually has been an amazing amount of of progress, but we're not there yet where we can say, if you get cancer, you're going to get cured or we can prevent cancers, which would be even better. Uh, We have some that are are quite curable now, others that are getting better, and some that we haven't made a whole lot of progress with. So, you know, as a whole, it's a mixed bag, but certainly cancer survival has gone way up over the last 10 years. There's a definite trend in most, but not all, cancer types that show that there has been progress made. And uh, thank God for that, because certainly we as the taxpaying public in the U.S. and around the world have invested in enormous sums and, and effort into trying to cure this thing. To that point, the fact that I think most people who kind of ask these questions kind of in passing are waiting for that headline of a silver bullet cancer cure, something like that. Are we kind of doing ourselves a disservice by by looking at that way? And does that prevent us from appreciating, as you reference, kind of the progress that has been made because cure for cancer gets, you know, eight point headlines in every paper across the country. Survival rate from 25 to 54% of a cancer over a five year period doesn't make the newspaper, but that's thousands of lives that have been saved. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember, you know, some of these headlines over the past, and I'm not talking about in, you know, um, crummy newspapers, but, you know, something like the New York Times headline from 20 years ago about, uh, discoveries made in, in inhibiting vascular growth. And that, that was thought to be a universal cancer cure. And it was literally on the front page of the New York Times how 
you know, if you were in the cancer business, you were probably going to be put out of business. And uh, we were even toying here kind of jokingly, because I knew this couldn't be true, that we would change from the Fox Chase Cancer Center to the Institute for Aging or something like that. Well, that didn't happen. I mean, I, I'd be happy to be put out of business and, and go into some other branch of science. But unfortunately, that headline 20 years ago wasn't true. And neither of any of the other similar headlines about some universal cure. But as you said, there has been a lot of incremental progress. And the thing about incremental progress, as you noted, is it doesn't shock the senses. You don't come, you know, talking to your family about, oh, my God, there's been a, uh, a 10% survival increase. But, you know, 10% here, 10% there over enough time, suddenly you have a 50% increase in survival. And there's been, say, in breast cancer, the, the survival rates are just much better than they were 20 years ago. Uh, the time when my mother got breast cancer, the cure, if you were going to get it, uh, was surgical only. And fortunately for her, she was cured actually twice uh, by surgery. Now people can survive almost as a, like a chronic disease, the way we treat diabetes. There's not a cure for diabetes, but people can manage it for prolonged periods of time. There's plenty of people with prostate cancer, breast cancer, and others who may never completely be cured of it, but nevertheless can live decades and may end up you know, succumbing to some other unrelated things. So th that is real progress. It, it's not the kind I think the public completely get their head around. I mean, speaking generally, but it is something quite valuable. And, uh, you know, I, I recognize it every time I see the survival curves, which year after year go up a little bit. And even in my career, which is now spans 30 years, it's really from the time I was a resident to now, it's just amazing amount of progress. Is that a more realistic goal to make cancer something almost like a chronic condition in a lot of cases than the kind of this, like we said, you know, this cure where you just have a quick surgery or take a pill or you get one kind yeah, of treatment? It's, you know, it's going to be mixed. There, there are cancers that can be definitively cured. Usually that's surgical and not always. But, you know, if a cancer is very localized and it's taken out, people can be cured. And, and, you know, like they have been for the last century, if it's early enough for those that are spread, it's a little different. And I mean, a, a good example would be, you know, a type of leukemia, CML or chronic myelogenous leukemia. Um, this is a disease that the most famously Lou Alcindor or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar suffered from. And at the time when he was diagnosed was about the same time, it's been 20 some years ago, when a new targeted medicine came out called Gleevec, which was the first of a sort of a class of, of targeted agent. But prior to having that kind of pill available, he would have eventually needed a bone marrow transplant. And you'd be lucky to survive that. Instead, he seems to be quite healthy. I mean, I don't know the man, but I see him on TV from time to time, you know, taking his daily Gleevec or a similar medicine that controls that condition in the same way that people with HIV very few cures of HIV that I'm aware of. There are a couple of rare examples. Most people who have it are well controlled on a regimen of some pills and more or less can live their normal life. It's the same is true for this, this type of leukemia and several other um, types of cancer. So those people are not strictly speaking cured, but they are very effectively managed. What makes cancer, and once again, I'm, I'm referring to it in, as this monolith, but what makes it so difficult to make kind of that from point A to point B, you know, diagnosis to cure it. Is it how, cause some of the stuff I read preparing for this, a lot of cancers, if you and I got the same one, it could look kind of different and the treatment would be different. Is it that almost individuality or what is it that 
that well, really... have, there's two main factors. One is just the sheer complexity of biology itself. I mean, I've been at this game for my whole life, really, and I'm still blown away daily when I read new reports from just basic scientists about biology and things that we thought we understood, but now we have to look at in a new light. It's continually turning over. It's just, you know, I always thought physics was maybe the most complicated of the sciences. I'm not sure. I mean, I still don't understand physics that well, but in biology, which nominally I do understand, there is a lot beneath the surface that we're still getting at. So there's there's that innate complexity of biology that um, is just awesome in its own way. And then, as you say, it's not like if I figure out this thing that is universal for every single of the billions of people on this earth, we all have a different, different genetic background. We've increasingly noticed and appreciated the contribution of that background to how cancer will be in an individual and how it may respond to therapy. So it's not one size fits all. In fact, that's one of the great revolutions in cancer therapy over the last decades is that not only is cancer not one disease, but it's not even the same disease in the different individuals. Um, so if you got a melanoma and I got a melanoma, we may or may not respond the same to drugs that are out there. And uh, that's true across the board. So that appreciation of the particularities of an individual or so-called personalized medicine or precision medicine, another term that people often use, is much more appreciated now than ever. And luckily, we have the tools to begin to address that because back in the day, and the day meaning 10 or 15 years ago, it wasn't so easy to find out why you and I are different on a genetic level. Now, Sequencing is almost trivial. The costs have come down you know, thousands of fold. The first genome done 20 years ago cost some billions of dollars to do. Now it's close to about $100 to do a genome. So that is in the range where either an individual can pay for it or an insurance company can pay for it. So we and other cancer centers like us routinely do genetic sequencing on anybody who comes in with cancer. Um, and so we will know the genetic profile. That was not true certainly 15 years ago, even 10 years ago. And we will act as best we can on the knowledge of your particular genetic scenario, which is going to be different in pretty much every person. Even before getting ready for this interview, I remember a, a, a couple of years ago hearing that immunotherapy could be very big and kind of yeah. as far as kind of that individuality and, and use, finding a way to use the immune system to, to fight cancer. Where does that fit into the puzzle and is, is that something that that has a, a high ceiling as far as this oh, conversation yeah, yeah, is concerned? Immunotherapy has been an amazing addition to our armamentarium against cancer. You know, it's been considered pretty much forever in the cancer field that you could harness, if only you could harness the immune system, you might have a powerful ally in fighting off cancers. And in fact, it may be what prevents many of us from getting cancer in the first place. It's thought that every day, you and I and anybody else you might see is generating what might be cancerous cells at various places in your body. And they simply get eliminated by the immune system and you never, they never developed to a clinical cancer. You never knew you had it. That's great. <laughs> How powerful, uh, you know, we're, we're designed to uh, fight off not only infections, but, but cancer. However, you know, people do get cancer. There's some failure of immune surveillance. And in the last 20 or so years, there's been at least two different types of advances to harness your own immune system. The first one was this so-called checkpoint inhibitors, which won the inventor, the Nobel Prize a few years back. 
And this is a, a very clever method. I won't get into great technical detail, but cancer cells figure out ways to evade your own immune system. That's how they can develop. So they're cloaked. If you remember the old Star Trek, like the cloaking devices they would have on the, on the spaceships, well, they, these cancer cells can cloak themselves very cleverly. And what um, was figured out by a couple of the giants of, of oncology is that you could use drugs to uncloak these cancer cells, and then they would be recognized by your own immune system. And that has been, these checkpoint therapy, very effective in, especially in liquid tumors, that is things like leukemia and lymphoma, things in the blood or in the lymph system. It's been somewhat less successful in solid tumors, you know, the ones that most of us worry about, pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, et cetera. It's not that it has no effect there, but it's harder to predict in advance whether it will work there. And there's a lot of effort going on at our place and across the country in trying to figure out why immune therapy works so well in some people and not so well in others. And then there's a whole nother branch of immune therapy that's that harnesses um, your T cells. It basically takes T cells out of the body, engineers them with what we might call a warhead and then puts them back in the body. This a famous example was it uh, our neighbors it, it, down at the University of Pennsylvania who cured a child of leukemia using these called CAR T cells or armed T cells, if you will. And that type of cellular-based therapy has also been widely adopted across the world to combat various cancers. But that, like the checkpoint therapy that I described a minute ago, has also had its issues. It's not a universal cure by any means. It does work extremely well in some cases and not in others. And there's a whole lot of us you know, trying to figure out how we could predict in advance you know, that it's going to work, or if it's not going to, what we need to do to make it work. But those two together have really revolutionized things. It's added an additional component to the drug therapies that we give, or radiation that we give, or surgery. You now have a fourth thing, your own immune system. So that has been quite revolutionary. I've heard some people talk, and if this is close to what you just described, because I don't understand the, the science very well. But uh, with the COVID vaccines, the R mRNA technology, I heard some people opine that this could be a tool used in the fight against cancer. Is that something that could be on the table or is it also being used? A big time. I mean, if, if the grants that I look at now, uh, a good percentage of them deal with just that. I mean, the, the phenomenal success of these mRNA-based vaccines, which were you know, brought in under emergency circumstances, they would have eased their way into the clinic eventually, but because of COVID, they were kind of thrust upon us. Uh, and luckily, uh, they worked extremely well. They didn't have a lot of toxicity, uh, despite some stuff that you read sometimes, and they were quite effective in eliciting immune responses. And it has not escaped cancer biologist attention that the same approach might be useful in, in cancer therapies. And so there is a tremendous amount of activity at many, many centers, including our own on this front. There's not a whole lot published yet. I mean, there's some papers just beginning to come out. It's not used yet clinically, but it will be within a year or two, I would say. There'll be clinical trials if there's not some already that I'm not aware of. So it's definitely on people's mind. It's an enabling technology. Sometimes we use that term to use mRNA in this manner. For people that maybe have heard about mRNA, can you just give a quick primer of what this would do, like in theory, a, a best case scenario? Sure. So, you know, mRNA is a natural. We all have are full of mRNA. It's, it's the it's transcript of DNA. So, you know, if you remember the uh, 
Maybe maybe I'm asking too much, but in basic biology that you had learned now in high school, you have DNA, RNA, and protein, sort of the three classes of things. And DNA gets transcribed into RNA, and then the RNA is used to make protein. So that's the the central tenets of uh, of molecular biology. In any event, so the the RNA is kind of in the middle. It's taking the instructions off the software, which is the, the DNA. And translating it into hardware, which is proteins, which sort of do all the work in your body. And um, you know, people have worked to put DNA into people. I mean, they, they, you can take viruses that are made of either DNA and RNA and have them deliver various genes into the body, and that's still done. It, it's always been a little bit controversial because people worry about: Am I altering my genetic components somehow? Is this going to be passed on to my children? Which really isn't going to happen. But anyway, the RNA gets rid of some of those problems because the RNA is not around forever. It's only around for a couple of days. It's unstable. While it's there, it it makes proteins, whatever it's designed to make. In the case of COVID, it makes uh, the spike protein from COVID, and then you make antibodies to that. Now, could you have used DNA to do the same? Actually, you can, and some of the vaccines were based on DNA. But the RNA is just very easy to make. It's gone after a couple of days. You don't have to worry about lingering genetic material, you know, hanging around your body. So those features make it sort of a universal platform for any time you want to introduce any new protein into the body. And so I think that's what's been so popular. The reason it couldn't be done before was technical. I mean, the the RNA itself can't be used in its unmodified form. It would have an immune reaction to it. And so it took a long time for chemists to figure out how to modify the RNA slightly so it would not be rejected out of hand can do, go about its business making proteins and then go away. And that's exactly what we have now with these mRNA-based therapies. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Jonathan Chernoff right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Chernoff, Cancer Center Director at Fox Chase Cancer Center. You mentioned several different types of cancer through this conversation. If I had to ask you for a a quick list of cancers where we have made the most progress, where we have really gone the furthest over the last 20 years or so, what would be at the top of the list? Well, I mean, the one I mentioned before, it's not the most common disease in the world, but this chronic myelogenous leukemia or CML, not super common, but it is kind of the paradigm for how we like to treat other ones. I mean, it turns out that's a rather genetically simple a cancer compared to some of the other ones that we deal with, but the control of that by a targeted agent has just been, you know, not just excellent in itself, but we wish we could do the same for other cancers. So that's kind of at the top of the list. And then, you know, more complicated, but also pretty high on the list is breast cancer in general. And I say in general, because like cancer in general, there is no breast cancer. There's a lot of different types of breast cancer. We have them divided. Some people divide them into 10 groups, some into four, but nobody says it's all one disease. And there are different genetic causes behind breast cancer. And depending which type you have will affect what sort of therapy you have. We still have a few subtypes of breast cancer, which are very difficult. Many others, which we have excellent therapies for and can keep people alive, you know, for a long, long, long time, as we mentioned before, where it may not be the breast cancer that gets somebody in the end. Uh, So that one survival has increased a lot. On the other end of the spectrum, we have things like pancreatic cancer, which 
although it's getting a little better, is still, you know, just a terrible disease to get. Um, it's not generally caught early. When it's caught, we don't have great therapies for it. Uh, you know, people are working desperately to find better things, but that's sort of that one and liver cancer and some brain cancers are really, I don't want to say intractable because that, that's the wrong message, but have been intractable to date. We just are making very slow progress with, with some of these. And you may imagine that those that are the most difficult are attracting the most attention, which is true. And we at Fox Chase, and I know people at other cancer centers are focusing in on some of these extremely difficult cancers to see if we can't do better here as we've done in some other cases. How much attention should we be placing on a lot of discussions like this focus on the diagnosis forward on how far we have come from a screening process, from a prevention process, from a knowledge process, understanding what your body's doing and when to get checked out, stuff like that. Uh, how big is that in this quest for a cure? Oh, you know, it's it's huge. I mean, we've been talking mostly about therapeutics, about people who come in with cancer, perhaps an advanced cancer. And it would be way better if we didn't get to that stage. So certainly prevention is absolutely key. I mean, probably the decrease in smoking rates, which is, you know, over a half century as a huge sort of public uh, affairs uh, activity with all kinds of branches of government and private people and education efforts to get people to smoke less. That probably has made a bigger difference in survival than anything we've ever done on the therapeutic front. Similarly, and this is a story that resonates here at Fox Chase because it's where discoveries were made, you know, hepatitis B vaccine, uh, which was first made here at Fox Chase back in the 70s uh, and led to a Nobel Prize, that vaccine probably saved somewhere in the order of 10 to 100 million lives because people with the vaccine didn't get hepatitis B. Hepatitis B chronic can lead to liver cancer, which is almost universally fatal. So that was a preventive measure because, and there's other vaccines against HPV, papillomavirus. That's another huge one that saves a lot of lives because people don't get then cervical cancer, don't die of cervical cancer. So that and, and smoking, and now maybe if we could help on the dietary front because obesity is another big risk factor. We have done less well there, I would say, as a society, as, as, as doctors and you know, in general. But controlling those sort of things or keeping people out of the sun for melanoma, hugely effective, better than getting the latest chemotherapy. Don't get melanoma in the first place, or if you get it, catch it super early. And that leads into this other part, you know, prevention would be best. If you can't prevent, we would like to intercept cancers very early. It's kind of a new buzzword going around the cancer world. It's called cancer interception. So could we detect cancer at its very earliest phases and then, you know, presumably be much easier to treat. And so I'm happy to say, you know, here at Fox Chase and at a few other places in the country, there are big grants from the NCI and other agencies funding this cancer interception concept, which involves, you know, detection at the earliest phases, either using blood samples or imaging methods, and then intervening at that point. So prevention would be the best thing. Next best would be interception. Um, and then if you if neither of those things happen, now we're in the realm of, of treatment, which we talked about earlier. So th there's been a lot of focus on that. You know, some of it is not headline grabbing either. I mean, if, if, if smoking rates go down 10 percent, is that going to make the front page of The Times? I think not. And yet, if you looked at the number of lives saved 
it probably should be up there because, you know, nothing will ever develop on the therapeutic side, even if we could cure every single cancer that developed that would approach the um, prevention in the first place. Now, one new development, uh, you know, in this interception or early diagnosis space, you know, involves blood tests where we actually sequence, uh, you know, rogue DNA that might be floating in the blood. So sometimes if you have cancer, even in the earliest stages, some of its DNA escapes into the bloodstream. And various academic agencies or companies are developing ever more sensitive tests to detect any abnormal genetic change in the blood. And that, you know, leads to the question, how would you even use such a test? Because would you take you, know, you and I or anybody else who's apparently cancer-free, send them for their annual checkup, do a blood test, and then come back and say, hmm, you know, you've got a marker of cancer in you. <laughs> it leads, it sounds great, you know, in theory, because now you can go to your doctor and get some scans and you figure out and they'll catch your cancer early. But it turns out to be a very complicated issue because all of those tests have a certain false positive and false negative rate. And so it's not completely benign to you as a person to get a blood test that comes back positive if cancer can't be found, because you may have to go through a lot of tests which could be invasive and may cause their own problems. So there's a kind of a balancing act. I mean, some of this has been presaged by what's happened with prostate cancer screening. So forget about fancy DNA tests. We have some blood tests that just look at proteins. This most famous is PSA, prostate-specific antigen. There's been a debate that's been raging for probably 25 years now about whether you should do routine PSA testing in men of a certain age. You would think it's a no-brainer. Like, of course, you're at risk for prostate cancer. If you're a guy, it's one of the most common things you can get. Why wouldn't you just do a blood test to see if this thing is elevated? Well, it turns out... Again, it's being debated, so I'm not going to you know, say it's right or wrong to do, but there's a lot of false positives in that test. So you might have a high level and actually not have a clinically significant prostate cancer, one that would ever do anything to you. So if you get that test back, now you're obligated to get a biopsy of your prostate. That may cause problems. Um, yeah, it might save your life or it might be a totally useless procedure that just causes you morbidity or, or you know, problems with the procedure. So all of the screening methods end up, if they're invasive in the least, or even if they're not, just what are you going to do with the result? And if you're going to be screening millions and millions of people, even rare things will then occur a lot because of the numbers involved. So it's kind of the dilemma of screening. You know, how much do you do and in what population? And again, I'm not going to pretend to have the answer to this if there is an answer. I'm just posing some of the difficulties that we face in the screening space. And to, to bring this home, and once again, with kind of the caveat that everything is different, but I think the average person should be, it sounds like, genuinely optimistic that we are making steps in the right direction in a relatively rapid fashion. I think so. I, you know, the, the problem that one runs into is people always go back to the 70s when the you know, war on cancer was declared by Nixon. And so the analogy was going to be like the moonshot. The, the moon landing, you know, Kennedy said in 10 years, we're going to be on to put a man on the moon and bring him back again. And we did. I mean, I was just a little kid at the time, but I know that was an, an amazing and huge national effort that consumed, you know, a god awful amount of our GNP, GDP every year. But we did it. And, you know, and now we're going back, I guess, 50 years later. But it turned out the cancer war wasn't and couldn't be a 10 year war because we didn't understand the way that they understood the physics of going to the moon. We didn't have anything like that about sort of the biophysics of cancer, if you will, or the biology of cancer. It took 50 years just to understand, you know, what the heck was going on with cancer cells. 
And now we're in a phase where, you know, you can see progress pretty rapidly. It's still not on the pace like the rockets to the moon. And that's one of the reasons I object to the whole terminology around current efforts to cure cancer, which have been called moonshot. Now, I, I, um, I like what the Biden administration is doing in cancer. I think he's one of the few presidents who's been genuinely invested in this because of his own personal family history and perhaps other reasons. So I admire that we have you know, a lot of attention on it. I just think the moonshot analogy is a really poor one because it raises certain expectations which are going to be disappointing to people when they don't happen. You know, I think their stated goal was to reduce cancer by 50% in some very short time frame. I guess it's great to have a stretch goal. I am not super optimistic that we're going to hit, hit that one. But I am optimistic in general that we will improve things because we already are doing so. And um, that pace is likely to keep accelerating because our tools keep getting so much better. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.